This is Security in Focus podcast, episode six, uh, a conversation of me having a uh, talk with a room full of security professionals discussing security systems. I am the founder uh, and chief operating officer of Umbrella Technologies. I have 18 and a half years uh, in physical security, um, mostly residing on the technology side of the house. So uh, formally, I'm the founder of Century 360, which was a developer of smart surveillance cameras for government and commercial applications. I had that company for over 14 years where we trained, uh, developed, installed, educated, um, the security infrastructure world on surveillance optics and capabilities. I have six patents. Um, a couple of them are on, you know, uh, development as it relates to software with surveillance. A couple are um, on hardware as it relates to surveillance, and a few are on immersive imaging uh, and displaying of, of uh, complex imaging uh, technologies. Um, what I'm really passionate about is giving people who are responsible for protecting other people and facilities and assets and information, empowered information so that they can make good decisions. Um, the reason I started Umbrella was because of after 14 and a half years of working with installing system integration companies, um, educating them, training them, I saw how those, how the, how the uh, training and education got translated to the end user. And unfortunately, I saw time and time again that the uh, education was not passed down to empower end users. It was held very, very tight to the vest um, for the installers and or even if that information sometimes wasn't even in the hands of the installers or the, or the consultants. Um, they seemed to pass something down anyway, which uh, oftentimes was wrong or incorrect. Um, I started Umbrella to, to really give this value that I've been giving thousands of system integrators in the security world direct to the end user. And that's really what my mission is. Um, I have one of the most popular blogs on physical security. We write anywhere from three to eight articles a month from topics ranging on uh, active shooter technologies and process to uh, wireless surveillance to electronic access control technologies, best practices, procedures, and really it's a resource that we give away for free um, to end users. Um, and we just started something new. Uh, I've been planning and wanting to do this for a very long time um, after listening to podcasts myself uh, I started a podcast, and if you listen to podcasts, you know there's a couple things wrong with them. First of all, the first five minutes is typically a commercial, and you have to fast forward the first five minutes to get to the what you want to talk about. So I have no ads, no sponsors, or anything on my podcast. We get right down to business, um, uh, because I think podcasts should be one of two things. They should be either really, really entertaining or they should be really, really giving you valuable pieces of information. 
And if they don't do both or one very, very well, it's a waste of time because podcasts are great if you're driving from point A to B. You can be focused on the road and you can listen and learn. I mean, it's just a, it's a great uh, explosion um, in the world where information is somewhat commoditized. Uh, so today, we're going to talk about getting you all of the facts and figures about video surveillance. Now, this can be a wireless infrastructure. This can be a license plate recognition system. This could be a camera system for your booking room or your city or your town. Um, or recommendations you make to the IT department or facilities or public works. It, it really all depends. Um, I've spoken at this event on and off for the past 14 years and um, really great, really honored to be here again. Um, so let's dive right in. Uh, problems with most surveillance camera systems. So, you know, if this wasn't 2019, I wouldn't still persist on this. When we watch the news of a crime happening, is it crystal clear, even today? Unfortunately, we all know the answer is that it's not. Um, so there's still a problem. Just seconds ago, I got an email from one of my customers, and I know I was a minute late, but I was telling him the site that he told one of my engineers to go to, he thought it was an IP-based system, and we had to tell him, no, there's coaxial cable into the back and several of the cameras from 10 feet away, if you digitally zoomed into that image in post-record, you could not identify a suspect. So um, standard is HD streaming. Uh, what HD is is 1920 by 1080p resolution, but the reality is analog is 320 by 240. So if I have an analog camera in the corner of this room looking at maybe a 90 or 70 degree angle, people by the third row, if you digitally zoom in, you're probably not gonna see who they are. And if this camera is intended to capture information other than the guy was wearing a red shirt, or maybe it was a female with a blue dress on, then what really is the purpose? And the cost today for IP and HD surveillance cameras is not what it was. Um, in 2004, I started talking to IT directors uh, about telling them that they should put a 1600 by 1200 resolution motion JPEG camera on their network, and I got laughed out of more rooms than uh, we took a next step with. But today, there's H.265 compression, compression, there's open standards, and then there's cost justification everywhere in between. But recent years have introduced new challenges with video surveillance that it's not always about just HD quality. It's about who makes the chip on the board inside the camera behind the lens. Today is a very important day in the video surveillance world, whether you believe it or not. Uh, I'm a very much a surveillance nerd, so I know how important today is. Today, our federal government banned several several Chinese manufacturers from operations in the United States. I'm gonna get into that a little bit more, but today that went into effect. The world, the number one largest commercial surveillance camera manufacturer is owned by the Chinese government. Has had the most reported 
vulnerabilities for cyber attacks into their IoT and surveillance devices, have been caught with eavesdropping, enabling the audio remotely from their devices. So not only do they have vulnerabilities in their software that lives on the camera, they have specific peer-to-peer -peer infiltration. They've been accused of espionage. They've been now, as of today, banned by the government. And unfortunately, it's still hard to tell if the camera that's installed on your building is the one that was, under, that was sanctioned today. We'll get into that a little bit more too. The other problems are compatibility issues. This was also a major thing for years that I would fight is that you would have analog infrastructure would not be compatible if uh, an IT person said yes or a, a security person said yes, I want that high resolution camera or that panoramic camera in my facility. If it didn't work with the video recording software or DVR system, then it's not gonna happen unless you wanna have a concurrent additional system uh, under your control, which most don't. Um, so there's still compatibility issues um, and there's still devices that leave multiple blind spots, which we'll get into. Uh, the other variable here and the reason why this is a whole class and this is really a whole talk is that not all surveillance cameras perform in different applications. So if you have a camera on your, on your squad car and you have different kinds of lighting or you stop them at a different area where maybe it's lower lighting or very high lit area, the camera that you're using in a squad car or on a parking lot would need to have effective dynamic range, would need to have different compartments of exposure so that it can compensate for, for changing light environments. Another part of that is wide dynamic range. So for building infrastructure, so if it's on your parking lot, if it's in your booking room, if it's in your sally port, if it's on the corner wirelessly in your town or your city, having true wide dynamic range is very important. And so that measuring stick, you can see the difference in quality between it turned on and turned off. I'm gonna, don't get, don't get afraid, I'm gonna turn the lights off so that you can actually really see this uh, in better context. Hopefully we're not getting nervous in a room full of uh, law enforcement officers. Okay, so let's play this one more time. So that's all the sensor is adapting. At certain times in the day, we are getting really great images, but as the sun rises or, or sets, uh, exposure happens and light can affect image quality dramatically. Um, and that's why having a minimum of 120 dB rating, that stands for dynamic range, believe it or not, um, is really the standard. Uh, anything below that, is not going to be very effective for varying degrees of light. Now, if it's a indoor, like a uh, inventory room or um, something that has controlled lighting, you really don't have to worry too much about hitting that 120 threshold. You can go below that, but in any kind of exposure to change of light, you really wanna make sure that your camera has 120 dB rating at minimum. That is really the, the, the true cutoff between kind of a, uh, 
an algorithmic, uh, you know, wide dynamic range and what a true uh, wide dynamic range is. So the other component of quality of surveillance, I'll put the lights back on a little bit more, is frames per second, okay? And so frames per second is data and is quality uh, in between. So if we're, right now we're looking at one frame per second or one pixel uh, per second. There's a lot of systems that still only have one pixel per second on their, on their cameras, believe it or not. Um, but as we're looking at it, I can see the people in there. I can see there's three people, not, you know, come, there's, there's maybe, a, there's a woman there. I'm seeing people walk in what direction, someone picking something up. It's very easy to look at video long enough and make excuses for it. It's very easy. So people, that's why, and my part of the opinion I have, it wasn't necessarily all about the technology. It was about the justification of what Hollywood does. Even in Hollywood movies, they dumb down the CCTV footage for you because people are more adept and used to seeing grainy, slower moving, slower frames per second video than they are seeing crystal clear fluid motion video. So if we continue to look at this, we can justify different frames per second. That's why isolating them and looking at them in different perspectives is really important. Five frames per second um, looks night and day if you look at it long enough. The difference between one and five, well, I, I gotta have five frames per second. And then if you continue on, 10 frames per second, well, that looks like real time. Netflix, believe it or not, is not 30 frames per second, which is real time video. It's actually 26. Uh, and so you're looking at the difference between half of real time and then real time, which is 30 frames per second. All of this is application dependent. Are there maybe some applications where you can get away with one frame per second? They're very narrow today um, with advanced compression technology. But yes, if you just kind of want to have a still image and it's on a remote construction site, why would you need to pay for 30 frames per second when you're really just going to be looking at that two or three times a week to see the progress of installation on a, on a site? Whereas if you have a booking room you, and you have people that are escorted for the most part and not going to be doing any kind of significant speed enhancements, um, you probably want to have 10 to 15 frames per second minimum. If you have situations where there could be sudden movement and speed, you want to consider 30 frames per second. And if you also want to consider capturing license plates at varying degrees of speed, 30 frames per second is often not enough. You can actually get cameras that can do 60 or 120 frames per second that can actually capture high, fast-moving vehicles on highways, but everything is dependent. If there's a bumper or if there's a narrow lane, you don't need 60 frames per second. So all these things make a difference. So if you see it all together, you can kind of put it into perspective that all what you select and it, picking a camera that can adjust the frame rate, you can actually select, well, I want this camera to be 
10 frames per second and this camera to be 30 frames per second, but this camera is really just occupying a um, inventory room and people are just gonna walk in and out of there. Maybe we can settle at seven frames per second with that because it's motion triggered anyway. But if you don't apply different rules to different cameras based on their application, you're just wasting money <laughs> because all of this translates to bandwidth. All of this translates to storage, image quality, frames per second, complexity of scene, compression. These are the four variables of math that go into, do I need two terabytes of, store, of, of, of storage or do I need 200 terabytes of storage? So, so those are some of the factors. And so let's also put this into a perspective in another area. So 30 frames per second, here's a really great example. If you have a hallway, okay, and you just wanna basically get general traffic down the hallway, do you need, and it, let's say it takes five seconds, five seconds from person at the beginning of the hallway to go to the end of the hallway. Do you need 150 pictures of that individual walking down the hallway? The answer is no, you can go less. So you can see this is, that's basically the question you should ask yourself. Is there gonna be a sudden change in speed or is there a threat for that? Um, or how much do I need based on the application? Because one frame per second or even anything sub five frames per second, the person could be in the scene and gone. They could have, you could have missed them picking something up or throwing that first punch easily if you don't have the right frame per second adjustment to, uh, to that. So the next obvious component is resolution. And so everyone wants the best resolution. But again, I wanna to put to perspective the, the, the camera, let's say a camera is mounted behind my, my head here and its objective is to see all of you, okay? So even if it's a 1080p camera, an HD camera will not have 200 pixels per foot if we digitally zoom and do people at that seat or at that seat or you in the back because it's depth, okay? So, and, and it's focal length. So if your focal length is wide, like a three or a four millimeter, seeing anywhere from 90 to 70 degrees, you're spreading that pixel density out over that field of view. So when you, in recorded video, digitally zoom in, you're only zooming in to the available pixels that were recorded, okay? Optical zoom is a whole different animal. If optical zoom is, is in fact, you're only recording where you're zooming into. Now, I could take a PTZ and read someone's badge or if they hold up their business card, I could optically zoom into that and identify it. But I can only do that in real time, okay? That's the difference. Those are the questions that you have to ask yourself is, is optical zoom the best area to get high pixel density or is a wide area for situational awareness better? Um, and these are the different degrees of, of pixel density that you could have and you could have all of these with the same camera depending upon the depth that you want to see. So there is math involved in this. And there is pixel, pixel density calculators that can help you with this as well. So if you have a camera uh, mounted eight feet and I want to, at worst case scenario, be able to see someone 30 feet away, 
there's a pixel density calculator that we can help you with, or you can Google it, and uh, it will show you what's the pixel density at this height, this resolution, this focal range, this uh, depth. And it will tell you, 20 pixels per foot, anything under 20 pixels per foot is really not going to be productive. Maybe you're gonna see man or woman, maybe you're gonna see, is it a red pickup truck or is it a white SUV? You can see that some of those characteristics at, at far depths with, with 20 pixels per foot or less, but outside of forensic, you know, anything outside of forensic detail, you need a minimum of, a, of 80 plus. Um, here's a depth example. So 20 pixels per foot, if I'm digitally zooming into the image, if, even if my focal rate length is to kind of measure between this lane here, you can also get 100 pixels per foot. It's about focal length, it's about resolution and lighting and compression. It's all of these variables put into place. Here's another example of someone entering a facility. It can be any kind of facility. If we have a camera you know, mounted too high or not in the right spot, you're not gonna get the forensic value uh, that you're gonna need. So clearly in this example here, yeah, the camera could maybe, its objective is to kind of get the parking lot situational awareness, like maybe who pulled into, or did a, did a car pull into the parking lot? Was it a white SUV or a white minivan? But if you have that expectation that that same camera, just because it's a surveillance camera, is also going to be able to identify the person that got out of that vehicle and walked towards the building or even walked towards the camera, it's not gonna happen. You have to pick the right, it's just like football. Uh, you know, we're gonna put the, the right position, the right player in the right position to be successful. You have to put the right camera in the right objective to be successful. Um, and this is a really good example. I actually, when I was, I spoke, I spoke last year here um, and I pulled this off of uh, social media uh, just a few weeks before my last talk and I'm still seeing these today. I should have updated it because this is, this is constant, right? Some of these robberies. The camera placement was all wrong. The camera was probably mounted 10, 15 feet up in the air or something like that and it was designed to capture the front door but you're getting the top of people's heads. You know, you can put vandal-proof cameras at seven, eight, five, six feet, or even an intercom camera that people don't even know is a camera for professional systems and have it be at eye level. That's how you're gonna really, you know, execute on, uh, on your objective. Another, you know, just to kind of put it in, in general terms here, 20 feet up, eight, six feet away, So if my 20-foot camera was designed to kind of see just overview and I had another supporting camera to capture identification, then, then you're kind of executing on both, both fronts, situational awareness and forensic detail. Uh, another major key here, and this is, you know, sometimes everybody gets everything right up until this point, and then they make some of the mistakes that I'm about to talk to you about. So cameras are great. They're important. Getting the right camera with the right settings is also important. Selecting the right platform in which your cameras are recording on, managed, stored, and shared is probably the most important decision you can make in, in an in investment in surveillance. And 
I see mistakes made constantly with this. Um, it very much is application dependent. However, if you want a solution that will support multiple different types of security technology, like emergency mass notification, intercom system with one-way, two-way audio, um, fire alarm, burglar alarm, electronic door access control systems. If you want you know, a software suite that can actually integrate with third-party systems and not just a camera, you need to consider open platform solutions. There's not just one brand. There's not just one manufacturer that does this. There are many, okay? Um, but there are plenty of proprietary-based situations. It's like, for example, if you want to some, you know, maybe this will be me someday, if I ever want to own a Mercedes-Benz, I know that there's a lot of great things about being a Mercedes-Benz owner, but there's also a lot of negative things. I know from experience that if something small breaks on my Mercedes-Benz, I probably have to go buy a Mercedes-Benz part component. That part component is probably 10 times the cost at, that it would be on a normal car, but I still gotta get it because it's Mercedes and if they don't certify it, then you know it could break everything else. So same thing with surveillance systems. Open platform, open architecture is really the route you wanna take if this is your objective. That was a fun thing here. All right, let's get back. So I guess pulling it all together, this is a little bit of what you can expect from a software suite. It, has, it can support multiple different breeds of cameras, access control, integration. Let's get back into camera options again. I'm just gonna break this down for you really, really quick and simple. This literally could be a talk in and of itself, but I've already gotten into kind of some of the, the, the specs. Um, there's different cameras. You wanna put the right camera in the right position to be successful. There's directional cameras that are really specifically focused on a, uh, on, a, on a depth. There's other cameras that uh, are omnidirectional cameras. Some are single sensor size, like a fisheye lens. Um, others have multiple lenses that you can sometimes put in different directions. Fisheye cameras have their downfall. If you put them in a big area, really have the expectation only that you're gonna get situational awareness. You're gonna get very, very little forensic detail out of fisheye de-warping cameras. If it's a small room, great. You can put it in the middle of the room, don't need to put multiple cameras and you can see everything. If it's a parking lot, no. <laughs> put a multi-sensor in there. If it's a corner of a building, okay, make sure the multi-sensor camera has adjustable sensors. Um, let me show you an example. I'm going to get back there. So look at these. I picked these out on purpose. There is so many multi-sensor and fisheye cameras on the market. They all say they're awesome. They all say they're the best. Look, so, so this one right here, um, the one that kind of has, it looks like a PTZ, those sensors don't move, okay? So if you want to see right below or you want to see at an awkward angle on a corner, it's literally just seeing this. You cannot move it up or down. So you might be recording half of the sky. <laughs> okay, same with the one in the, on the bottom left-hand corner. Um, the one in the top right-hand corner, each sensor could be zoomed into different locations and different angles. 
okay? So there's adjustable panoramic sensors. There's non-adjustable panoramic sensors. There are some cameras that are just meant for wall applications. Some are better for corner mount applications. But I've just seen time and time again, people say, oh, I'm getting a panoramic camera. It's gonna see 360. And it doesn't do what they want it to do, okay? Your design, and I'm gonna get back to another slide I was on, okay? Overkilled it with the animation there. Um, your design should ultimately look something similar to this. It should have a healthy balance of directional, mini-dome, uh, panoramic, multi-sensor cameras that are each positioned to do a specific objective um, for your system. Um, doing the homework up front is what's gonna make you really satisfied long-term with your system, both from an optics to a storage to a resolution perspective. Um, so this is another example. This is a multi-sensor camera that, you know, if it's just situational awareness, fine. Um, alternatively, if you're just focused on a road and you just want to see this long road, great. It can do that too, but there's plenty of downsides to that as well. So this is what a fisheye would look like, okay? It's z literally just a circle, okay? And a lot of people hate looking at that. They think it's really cool on day one. But on day 42, they're turning their head to the left, turning their head to the right. If you're, and believe it or not, a lot of fisheye cameras don't allow this capability to do this. To correct the view in multiple directions and pan, tilt, and zoom in the video management software. Okay, so this should act kind of like a PTZ in all directions. You should be able to put static images in certain directions, but you're always recording the fisheye. So in recorded video, you can go back and pan, tilt, and zoom around. Um, but if it doesn't have client-side de-warping in the video management system, you're not gonna get this functionality. So one of the biggest problems with video management systems, let's, Anybody have a guess? What, what would it be? What would be the biggest problem with video management systems as it relates to investigations? Anyone want to be brave? It's a big one, for sure. Let's, let's kind of maybe narrow it down a little bit as it relates to kind of, uh, you know, software. What is, what is some, you know, functionality? What is some of the biggest problems people find when you know, uh, you managing their surveillance system. There it is. Finding what you want when you want it. It's the biggest problem um, is search, right? Is being able to, I, we know when an, an incident happened, going back into archives and finding exactly what you want quickly because unfortunately every software platform interprets this functionality with significant difference. Some have smart search capability similar to this where you isolate a specific camera view and you want to say hey the bag was left in this area let's just kind of put our you know region of interest around that area and find out where it was, and so it can take you automatically to that video. Here's another interpretation rendering of it. You're in your recorded video, you find your image, you wanna isolate that specific area, 
and you get a thumbnail. So this thumbnail allows you to, to select and look at different areas all at once. So you get a perspective of, at a glance, where what you're looking for could be and find it fairly quickly. And you can scroll through the timeline and, and, and get to what you need when you need it as, as best as possible. So smart search functionality with a, um, uh, a timeline and thumbnails is definitely the, the functionality that you kind of want. It could be the difference in investigation time between five minutes and an hour and a half. It really could. Um, but this is something that uh, I started to be brave last year because I know I'm talking to, you know, uh, you know, people that are very well versed in, in doing investigations. And I, and I hesitate to teach a little bit to, to you guys in this department, but there's a lot of elements that go into an investigation, as you know. There's when did it happen? Where did it happen? What direction did they exit or enter from? What was their age? What was their gender? What was their ethnicity? What were their defining characteristics? Were they wearing a hat? Was it the woman with the red dress on? I, you know, these are all the things that you're getting, but I'm sure you guys can, you know, understand, you, know, you, you rarely get all of these elements. You're getting some of them. And in an advanced surveillance review, this is a cool thing. So this is part of the presentation, which is kind of the, oh, neat, that's really cool, uh, technology uh, area. Um, so let's say for an example, we have 30 minutes of video that we need to review and we really need to find somebody very quickly. There was either a robbery or it was um, someone on our terrorist watch list. It could be a lot of different elements. And instead of looking at that 30 minutes of video, you can time sequence every single piece of traffic within seconds. So in that 30 minutes of video, you can break it down into seconds showing every piece of information that happened. Now, this isn't what happened in 30 minutes, it's everything that happened in 30, in 30 minutes and 53 seconds. So you're literally reviewing every single piece of moving traffic in seconds. Not hitting fast forward, it's an intelligent rapid forensic search capability. And here's even cooler, you can use filtering, te filtering techniques to do uh, other things. Um, so let's say I want to look at the same piece of video and I only want to look at people with red, okay? Because we didn't know gender or ethnicity, we just knew it was red shirt, okay? This can instantaneously break down that video clip and show you only red. In traffic situations, you can do the same thing. If we knew the getaway driver was, was, was a blue vehicle or a white vehicle or a red vehicle, we can break it down. We can even break it down to, was it a red truck? Was it a red SUV? Was it a red or a blue pickup truck? We can even break it down to what specific lane they were in. So let's only isolate this specific lane. Or was it a motorcycle? Or was it a green motorcycle? Boom. This is something that can connect to an existing system. This can be an analog system. This can be a hybrid system. This could be any kind of video surveillance data. You can even import 
commercial or consumer video and ingest that into this system and apply rapid forensic search capabilities to it. So for cities, towns, municipalities, this type of solution is pretty interesting and it's very effective. Um, the city of Chicago uses this um, on a daily basis at the 911 center. Um, several cities and small towns now use this. I have met the owner and the inventor of this company. I met him uh, 13 years ago. It really, it, and, and I would say this to his face, it really wasn't until five years ago that this product was ready for prime time and ready also for not just the city of Chicago, but for even significantly smaller users. They had a lot of challenges in the development of this product. And like anything else, things take time and good things take time. But uh, I have been monitoring this progress over that same space and it really, really works and it's very, very effective. Um, let's give another example. Let's say we have a covert operation down a street. We don't know, you know, what is going on, but we're monitoring a street for crime activity. So if we want to take a day of video or a week of video and look at it forensically, we can filter several things. Where do people go? How often do they go in specific areas? What direction do they go in? Okay. Um, what type of different people go in certain areas? And we can narrow down where the heaviest traffic door is on a street. And who can tell me if on a given day there's a significant amount of numbers to a specific door, what kind of a house is that? Probably not. It's either someone super popular or it's, you know, parents are out of town or it's a drug house. And, and this kind of technology on suspicious streets can be invaluable in documenting and, 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 and understanding that. And, and for the most part, gone are the days of a guy sitting in a car with, with binoculars. You can put up a temporary camera that's covert and pull this data over a week and then ingest that data into your rapid forensic search and do an audit on the data and it can tell you. Then you can create an, 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 an action plan from that. So, um, yeah, applying directions. We talked about that. That's it. So a couple more things that I'll leave you with. Um, I'm really, really on a mission to give the best educational content in the world as it relates to video surveillance, law enforcement technology, process procedure. I give it away for free. Um, I also have the only physical security blog, believe it or not, I've looked. Um, there's hundreds of cybersecurity uh, podcasts. I, I am the only uh, 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 physical security technology podcast that is on iTunes, Google Play, and all the other places. Um, it's security in focus. I have my first episode that launched a week ago, and we're talking more in-depthly about uh, what today happened was the United States banning um, several Chinese manufacturers from surveillance. And I'm more than happy to talk to you a little bit more about that. I know I actually, uh, I, I positioned, so, so I will before you leave. Um, the problem with identifying, even post, um, even post uh, uh, ban and tariffs on which brand this is, is because they have 
hundreds of OEM, private label companies that are small, that can be a two-man shop that sells products online, to Honeywell or Tyco. Honeywell is the largest OEM to one of the companies that just got bought today. Honeywell is a big, huge publicly traded company and they are also in the middle of a PR nightmare because they still haven't kicked them out of their product lineup. So even companies that manufacture products that are in your kitchen, like your refrigerator, like Bosch, for example, private labels, these same companies that are currently, as of today, banned. So it's hard to identify what the brand is. Um, you can search by the MAC address. You can do a MAC address search. You can get a security professional to do a scan and a vulnerability scan. We actually offer free vulnerability scans that we can actually scan your network and detect firmware or MAC addresses that are on a, a band or a vulnerability list. Um, we do that for free. Um, but that's the gist of it. If you have more questions, I'm here to talk to you. I'll stick around for a little bit. I'm also gonna be in booth 807 talking about locks, cameras, access control. And if you want to subscribe for free to this, I put a little fishbowl at the back door. Just drop your card in or come up and talk to me and I'll, uh, I'll get you on the list of the, the blog with the free resources in the podcast. So thank you very much for your time. I saw a lot of eyes, I appreciate it.